over your great mercy, your great grace. Thank you, Father, for a worthy Savior. Thank you that He can open the scroll. He can break its seal. He is worthy to dispense wrath as the King of Kings. And He is worthy to absorb your wrath for us. That we might be redeemed, might be brought into your family. It's incomprehensible to us the depth of this grace and mercy. So would you give us open eyes this morning to see the depth of the wonder of what you've provided and might it be transformative. That's what we need, Father. We need transformation. Would you transform us by this word today? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A few weeks ago, Americans received a COVID gift from the United States government in the source of stimulus checks that showed up in their bank accounts and in their mailbox. And the topic quickly became, what are you going to do with your COVID money? Some people paid bills, some paid down debt, some made purchases for which they had been saving, some gave gave their COVID gift to others who had greater need of it, and others put their COVID gift in the bank and their savings account. The question was appropriate when those checks showed up. What are you going to do with this unexpected gift? And the question is also reasonable for us this morning as we think about the unexpected gift of salvation that we have received from God. This gift is unexpected to us because we deserved one thing only from God, and that is His wrath. We did not merit His grace. We did not merit His compassion. We did not merit His mercy. We did not merit any kind of gift, any kind of favor, anything kind. We merited, deserved, earned, And had owing to us only death and wrath. Our our situation for most of us in this room or most of us who are gathered online was also compounded by the fact that we also were Gentiles. We were outside the covenant of God. We were outside His promises. We had no reason to expect that He would be kind to us. We were not His chosen people. We were destined for one thing only, and that is an eternal separation from Him in hell. And then, here came the gospel. This most astounding, unexpected, magnanimous, overwhelming, overflowing, infinite, beyond our comprehension gift of the gospel. And it saved us. The question is, What are you going to do with your salvation? 
having been graced by this salvation, having been graced by this incredible mercy, by this incredible gift, what will you do with it? And that is exactly where the Apostle Paul is taking us from Romans 12 to Romans 16. He has unfolded for us the wonders of the gospel. He's talked about our sinful condition. He's talked about salvation that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He's talked about the process of sanctification. He's talked about God's sovereignty over salvation. And now, having explained and and unfolded the wonders of the salvation, he seemingly is asking the question, So... What are you going to do with this amazing gift that you have received? And he summarizes really in this one verse, Romans 12, 1, all that we will unpack over the next months, year, years, I don't know, in Romans 12 to 16. Be obedient in every area of your life as a response of God's merciful work in your life. What will you do with your salvation? The Apostle exhorts us in this verse to give our lives in obedience and submission and sacrifice in everything to Him only. As John MacArthur has noted, the key to a productive and satisfying Christian life is not in getting more... (laughs) We already have everything we need. We don't need more. He continues, The key to a productive and satisfying Christian life is not in getting more, but in giving all. Our supreme calling is to serve God with all our being. And so in this opening verse, the Apostle Paul is going to make an appeal to the Romans that is going to guide the rest of this letter. Let us look at this appeal from two perspectives, two perspectives on this appeal to make our lives an obedience to Him. The first perspective, Paul is going to give us a reason for the appeal, a reason for the appeal, and that is the mercy of God, God's mercy. Notice Romans 12, verse 1. The apostle begins this transition into what our lives will look like because of who we are in Christ by saying, I urge you. That word urge is a word that might be translated and is translated in other places, exhort or encourage. It is a word that denotes a call to battle. It's a call to arms. It's it's a call to duty. And here the apostle is probably using this word with pastoral or even apostolic authority. I urge you and compel you on the basis of what is said and on the basis of what I have known and received from God as an apostle. I urge you, I compel you, I exhort you to do this. It is a strong word. Now, it's not a command technically, But it does have the feel of a command, doesn't it? This is Paul's way to say there is a deep implication for everything that I've said and I urge you in the strongest way to consider it and follow through with it. He wants the believer in Christ to experience the fullness of what God has for us in our salvation. He wants us to know not just that we have been redeemed, that we've been saved from God's wrath, but he wants us to know the fullness of salvation and how it might be transformative in our lives now. And it is is that 
reality that the Romans already were experiencing. If you, if you go back to Romans chapter 1, this is the testimony of the Romans church, Roman church. Chapter 1, verse 7. He's writing to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Excuse me, where am I? Verse hmm, 8. Excuse me. I got so excited I lost my place. That's okay. That's a good verse. We can read that one too. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, watch this. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you, for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. The testimony of what what the Roman church believed and what it was doing in their lives was becoming a worldwide testimony. And in fact, he not only starts the letter that way, he ends the letter in a very similar way, talking about the gospel, verse 26 of chapter 16. But now this gospel is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. Your testimony of your faithfulness to God, how God is changing and transforming you, is leading to the transformation of the nations. This is the Apostle Paul in chapter 12, verse 1, reaffirming this is what the gospel is designed to do. It is to change you and to transform you. One commentator said about the necessity of living out the implications of our salvation, quote, a doctrine, a gospel which has no significance for man's life and conduct is not a real gospel. And life and conduct which are not based on that which comes to us in the gospel are not Christian life and not Christian conduct. In other words, if the gospel doesn't change you, you haven't believed the gospel. Because at its heart, the gospel is transformative. So, Paul says, I urge you, don't overlook this. Don't forget this. Don't, don't pass it by. This, this is supposed to grip you and change you. And notice, notice how he makes this appeal. I urge you, brethren or brothers. It is, it is Paul's use of this word that reminds the readers that Paul is in the same position as them. That Paul is their brother. They are likewise all positioned as brothers together as sons to God. That that while Paul has apostolic position and authority, the apostle is still a brother just like them. And he has the same needs and he is compelled in the same way to follow Jesus Christ. He needs this just as much as they do. But it's also another reminder, isn't it? It's also a reminder that only those who are in the brotherhood of Jesus Christ can offer what He will call them to offer by the end of this verse, and that is worship. Only brothers in Christ can offer genuine worship. Only brothers in Christ can be genuinely changed by Christ. It takes salvation in Christ to be transformed by Him. So Paul begins... By making this urge, this call, listen, 
Listen to what I have to say. And why, why will he make the appeal? Or on what basis will he make the appeal? Notice verse 1. By the mercies of God. The apostles appeal to call them to a life of sacrifice, a life of commitment to Christ, a life of unending worship to Christ is based on God's mercy. And, and Paul, in fact, uses two different terms to denote that God has been merciful to them. Verse 1, notice how it begins, Therefore, in other words, on the basis of what precedes, I am urging and calling you. And everything that has preceded has been the mercy of God, right? So just go up one verse, verse 36 of chapter 11. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Everything we have is from Him. Everything that we have is by Him, through Him, by His means. And everything we have is for Him. In other words, it's all a gift. It's all of mercy. But we can actually go further back than just verse 36, can't we? We can go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 11. But That was last week's sermon, not this week. So if you want that, go back to last week. Everything we have, brothers, everything in this book has been a demonstration that what we have is by the mercy of God. And then the apostle not just refers backwards by saying, therefore, but notice he says specifically, by the mercies of God. Because of the incredible mercies shown to you by God, present yourself to Him. And I notice the apostle does not say, I urge you, brothers, by the wrath of God. Hmm. He could do that, couldn't he? But we should, we should live in terror and fear of God. And on that basis, we should come to him for worship. We should give him everything. But this is not a fear-motivated obedience. This is a tender call. This is an appeal from love. Remember everything that God has done to soften your heart and to draw him, draw, draw you to Him. He wants us to not just remember that God is wrathful, we should remember that, but the focus of our attention when we think about obedience to Him is the mercy that we have received from Him. What are these mercies? This word that the Apostle uses on this occasion is different than the typical word for mercy that's used in the New Testament. This particular word seems to emphasize God's grief or His lamentation towards sinners, His compassion towards sinners, His sympathy for sinners. He is sympathetic to them and willing to help sinners in their need. Paul picks up that theme in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The Father who, who gives mercy in manifold ways and by that mercy brings comfort to us. Verse 4 of that same passage, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
He is sympathetic and merciful towards us to bring comfort to us. This is a mercy that is compassionate and tender and comforting to us. We have seen this mercy from God way back in chapter 2 when He has withheld His judgment of sinners. Verse 4, Do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God is kind and He is merciful. And as an expression of that, He is patient. He's waiting. Friends, the moment you committed your first willful sin, God had every right to condemn you to hell eternally. And for most of us, He hasn't done that. He's been compassionate. He's taken pity on us. He's withheld His wrath. He has saved undeserving sinners. Chapter 9, verse 15, He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 18, So then He has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He desires. Verse 30, it's not just, verse 30 of chapter 11, it's not just the nation of Israel that He is merciful towards. It is Gentiles also, you and me. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their, Israel's disobedience, so now these also have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they now also may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that He may show mercy to all. What's the nature of this God? He is a God who loves to show mercy. He loves to show compassion to you. He wants to show compassion to you. He is patiently waiting for you to repent. But what I want you to notice is not just that the mercies are general, but that the mercy is also specific, isn't it? It's not just that God is merciful in general to Israel and to Gentiles. It is that He has been merciful to me. He has been kind to me. And on the basis of of the, the mercy and the patience and, and the compassion that He has shown to me, Paul says, I urge you, oh brothers and sisters, we need a recollection of what God has done in our personal lives to be merciful to us, to be patient to us, to withhold judgment against us. And on the basis that He has done so much for us, what can we do in response to His mercy towards us. There's one more thing I want you to notice about this phrase. It is the fact that the word mercy is a plural, mercies. The Old Testament uses a similar kind of word, also in the plural. But generally, when translators translate it, they translate it as a singular and not a plural. They translate it as a singular to, to denote that it is, it is the um, overwhelming nature of God. It is the character of God to be merciful. And, and they, they group all of His mercies into one lump that they call mercy. And, and that, that would be a reasonable way to translate it here. In fact, the NIV 
is at least one translation that translates it that way by the mercy of God because of the fact that God is merciful. But brothers, the fact that the apostle here says mercies is I think emphasizing the reality that we haven't received from him one time. We haven't just received from him twice or three times or four times. We have received overwhelming, abundant, overflowing, compelling, persistent grace and mercy. He has been compassionate to us over and over and over again. Why should the believer follow Paul's urging? Why should the believer present himself to God? Because he is overwhelmed by the mercy that he has received from God. We don't give to God to get from Him. That's a work salvation. The apostle is reminding us that we are going to give to God and sacrifice for God because we have received so much. We do this not not in order to gain favor from Him, but we give back to Him because we have, we have received so much favor from Him, so much kindness from Him. And there's also another implied reason for giving ourselves to God in submission. Paul says, I urge you by the mercies of God. I think the apostle is also implying here that when we give ourselves to God, It is to receive another mercy from Him. And when we sacrifice in obedience to God, we do that because of the mercy that is received, but in so doing, we are receiving another mercy from Him. We are receiving still more kindness from Him. It is is that obedience that will keep us from bondage to sin. It is that obedience that will keep us in delight of Him. That's that's chapter 6, verse 22. Listen to what he says, chapter 6. Now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. In other words, when you... When you have become God's slave and when you respond in obedience, sacrifice, and submission to Him, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. You have received mercy and that mercy compels you to obey and that becomes another vehicle to receive still more mercy. Why do this? Because of so much mercy we have received in anticipation of more mercy to come. The reason for Paul's appeal is God's mercy. The content of God's appeal, excuse of Paul's appeal is simply present yourself. Present yourself. I urge you brothers by the mercy of God to present your bodies. That word present was used in the Greek Old Testament as a technical term for the placing of of an offering on the altar. It has the idea of surrender or yield. And, and that's, that's an appropriate picture for believers who are now the, of, of the priesthood of God, the holy priesthood of God. It, it is to say when we present ourselves to God, I am yielding myself to Him. 
I am placing myself under his submission, under his, I'm placing myself in submission under his authority. He is the boss, I am not. He is the king, I am the servant. He is the master, I am the slave. There are two significant texts that parallel this in the book of Romans as we think about presenting ourselves to God. One is in Romans chapter 1. Those who do not do that, rather, verse 23, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of the corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity. There's a sense in which you don't have to do this. And Paul would say, to not present yourselves to God is the greatest of folly. On the other hand, there is another parallel passage, chapter 6, verse 13. Do not let your, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting, that's our word, the members of your body as sin to instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Oh, friends, this is, this is the new life that God has granted to us, that made, has made us to know and experience so that we can live as those who are alive from the dead. And that leads us to ask the question, if we are to present something, what is it that we are to be presenting to God? And what he would say is we are to present our lives to him. Notice what he says, present your bodies. What does he mean by the word bodies? That obviously could be a, a, a reference to our physical body. So we should, we should give to God, sacrifice to God, offer to Him, submit our physical bodies to Him. Some suggest that that is what's going on here because in verse 1 that would mean that He's telling us to give our bodies to God. Verse 2, our minds to God. So, so He's dealing with both the outer man and the inner man. And, and that creates kind of a balance. So our bodies, ought to be given to God so that we no longer indulge the flesh and that everything we do in our bodies ought to manifest the the transforming work of God. Likewise, our minds ought to do the same thing, verse 2. But I think what the apostle doing is not that, but he is actually thinking simply about the totality of one's life. When he says, present your bodies, it is to say to present our entire being, our entire life, to God, to surrender to Him. And I think that makes more sense contextually because in the rest of the chapter, he's not talking about giving bodies, he's talking about giving our lives. So verse 3, he's going to talk, verse 2, he's going to talk about our minds. Verse 3 through verse 8, he's going to talk about spiritual gifts and how the gifts are being used through our lives to influence the body. Then verses 9 through 14, he's going to talk about how we interrelate with those who are members of the body of Christ. And verses 15 through 21, he's going to talk about how we relate to those who persecute you, persecute us. He's talking about the totality of our lives. This is what our life is to look like. To be in sacrifice to Him. We are to present our lives to Him. The believer offers his ongoing life as a sacrifice. Instead of a dead animal on the altar, 
there is a living being who perpetually gives all of his life to Christ in service of him. You know, when we're saved, we are saved to live with God eternally. He saves us so that we would enjoy him forever. But enjoying him forever is not something for which we wait. Enjoying him forever is something if we are already in Christ that has already begun that is our reality now. That is our situation now. And, and the apostle, when he says, I am urging you to present your bodies, your lives to God, he is wanting us to enjoy that for which we have been saved already. He wants us to delight in the freedom and fellowship of being enslaved to God to be his children. As Steve Lawson has put it this way, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I will not look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, love by patience, live by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven. My road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, nor meander in the maze of mediocrity. I will not give up, back up, let up or shut up until I have prayed up, preached up, stored up and stayed up for the cause of Jesus Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he returns, give until I drop, preach until I'll know, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no trouble recognizing me. My colors are flying high, and they are clear for all to see. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. What do we present? Oh, just everything about our lives. We present our lives to Him. How is it presented? It is given as a sacrifice. It is given as a sacrifice. Now the Old Testament had a sacrificial system that would have been very familiar to the readers of this letter and the, New, and the early New Testament church. But in the New Testament, that system was done away with because Christ fulfilled the law. After Christ was resurrected, there's no more sacrifice to be made. He's made it already. So when the apostle says, give your bodies... As a sacrifice, he's not talking about literal bloody sacrifices on a bloody altar. Rather, we are offering spiritual sacrifices. And the ultimate spiritual sacrifice is our own lives. These sacrifices, these gifts, 
are not as a means to appease God. They are not given as a means to remove our debt of sin. That has been done. That has been accomplished. That has been finished by Jesus Christ. They are rather a joyful offering of gratitude for what God has already done for us, for us, accomplishing what we could never accomplish on our own. But it is, like the Old Testament sacrifice, it is an acknowledgement that we are wholly committed to Him. Everything is on the altar. It is a sacrifice. All of us is all in. Paul talks about that when he thinks about the ministry of Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2. He says about Epaphroditus, he came close to death, verse 30, for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. He put it all on the line. He was willing to die to fulfill his calling to Christ. Similarly, Paul will write in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I'm giving everything. I'm all in whatever Christ asks of me. To offer oneself as a sacrifice means we no longer claim our rights. We have no rights. Christ has taken all our rights. They belong to Him. And we are willing to be used by Him however He wills, suffering and enduring with joy, whatever He gives, honoring Him in every part of our lives. That, that's verse 36, isn't it, of chapter 11? From Him, through Him, to Him are all things. He gets everything from us. Like what one commentator says, while believers may be prone to speak about making sacrifices for the Lord, an expression not found in the Bible, Paul's appeal goes vastly beyond such a view of Christian responsibility. We don't make sacrifices. We are the sacrifice. We have given up our lives. It is total. And the Apostle notes three perspectives on this sacrifice. It is, notice first of all, a living sacrifice. In contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices that came to the altar and were killed and burned, our lives rather are perpetually being given to God and we are alive in our sacrifice. One writer has well noted, the death of one Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world has swept all dead victims off the altar of God. All the dead animals are gone to make room for the redeemed themselves as living sacrifices to Him who made, to Him who made Him to be sin for us. So we crucify and are crucified ourselves. All of our desires, all of our wants, all of our goals, everything is sacrificed on the altar of serving Christ and in submission to His goal for us. We are a sacrifice that is alive for His glory. So Paul will say in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ Christ. 
and it is no longer I who live. And he will say in Philippians chapter 1, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or death. I'm all in. I just want God to be exalted, Christ to be exalted whether I live or die. It doesn't matter to me. I just want Christ's exaltation. I'm all in for me. To live is Christ and die is gain. Why is dying gain? Because if he lives, he gets Christ. And if he dies, he gets Christ. It's all Christ. It's none of him. It's all of Christ. It is a living sacrifice. It is a sacrifice that is being perpetually given, purposefully given for him. Brothers and sisters, It's worth asking as we make our way through our daily decisions, through our daily circumstances, as we're as we're considering life around us, as we're considering our troubles, our difficulties, our pains, our sorrows, our our joys. As we're considering what we watch, what we read, where we go, what we do, what we eat, what we think. It's worth asking this question. Is this thought, deed, action, word, Activity, something for which Christ died for me to enjoy or something for which He died to redeem me from? Is this giving and being given and can this be done as a demonstration of my sacrifice to Him? Or would it demonstrate that I'm being sacrificed to the flesh and submitting to the flesh? How's it presented? It's presented as a sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. The apostle says it's also a holy sacrifice. That is, it is, is it, that is, it is a sacrifice that is set apart by God to be used for God's purposes. We no longer have liberty to use our minds and our bodies however we want. Our minds and our bodies, our lives, everything about us, is to be done in service of Him, in sacrifice to Him. We, we, we have seen that throughout this letter. But, but the joy here is not just that we, we are offered in sacrifice to Him, but that it is a voluntary sacrifice that is for His purposes. And we who never could be holy previously, now we can be holy we, we can offer a sacrifice to God. We can offer surface to Him. We can offer a life to Him that is set apart, distinct, sanctified, holy. Before, the only thing we could do was do unholiness. And now He says, you have capacity to offer a holy sacrifice. And not only is it a holy sacrifice, notice what else He says, it is acceptable to God. He's pleased. He looks at your life and He says, that's a life given in sacrifice to me. It pleases me. Now ultimately, the pleasure isn't just in you, is it? The pleasure is in what we were singing about earlier. (laughs) 
Who's worthy? (laughs) Who's worthy to open the scroll? It's the Lamb. And because the Lamb is our Lamb, because the Lamb was sacrificed for us, because the Lamb imputed His righteousness to us, God is perpetually, eternally pleased with us. And now, because the Lamb lives in us, we can do things that God says, that's acceptable. That gives me pleasure. That delights me to see my child walking in the truth that I've given him. We are made for God's glory and we can glorify Him. Our sacrifices are living, they're holy, they're acceptable. That's how we present ourselves to God, living all our life, holy, I want to be for Him, acceptable, I only want to please you. Why do we do it? Because, brothers and sisters, it's worship. Now, once a week, for about an hour and a half, we gather in this room and we call it worship. It is. It's corporate worship. But the apostle would have us to recognize that there's something that's going on in our lives that's beyond the corporate worship. It is personal worship that permeates our lives 168 hours a week, every week of our lives, every month of the year, every year of our lives. This is, he says, your spiritual service of worship. How are you going to serve God? Oh, you might, you might clean a toilet in the name of Christ. You might bake a meal in the name of Christ. You might teach an Awana class or you might disciple someone at Burger King on a Friday morning. Or you might counsel someone in a counseling room. You might teach a Sunday school class. You might do a lot of different things. But the Apostle says, this transformed life is your ultimate act of worship of Him. It's your ultimate act of service of Him. And notice what he says, it is your spiritual service of worship. That word spiritual is a word that is typically translated something like logical or rational in fact, some translations, I think the King James has it, it is your reasonable service of worship. That, that, that's an appropriate translation. In other words, this is logical. This follows. This makes sense. It is rational to give your lives to Christ, to give Him everything in light of the mercy that you have received from Him, if He has poured out such mercy on you, how could you hold anything back from Him? To hold back from Him would be illogical and irrational and even folly. This is why we say that life is not about me, it is about God. And friends, if you live for anything except Him, if you live for anything except to worship Him in every area of your life, life will be unsatisfying. Now, I know some things are hard. I've heard a dozen stories this week or more about real hardship, about real pain, about real suffering. Like you, I've had a knot in my stomach over some of those things this week. 
There were a couple of times I literally wanted to throw up. I was so grieved. It hurts. And I'm not saying that life is going to be easy when you follow Jesus Christ. But I am going to tell you that even when you get that knot in your stomach and you want to go outside and you want to throw up and you want to, you want to rip your heart out for sorrow, that life can be satisfying because of Christ. Because we don't live for this is the end. We live for there is the end. We live for Him is the end. And when you live for Him, He will satisfy you. Our worship dare not terminate on ourselves. Our worship dare not terminate on our own desires. Our worship dare not terminate on our own longings. If that's where it terminates for you, you will never be happy ultimately. Oh, there's a few little pleasures you'll pick up along the way. But they will die and burn for eternity if that's where you spend it. Oh, friend, there is nothing better than giving your life in service for Jesus Christ and having been saved by Him to tell Him it's your life, you take it and you use it how you will. Will that kind of life cost you anything? No. It won't cost you anything. It will cost you everything. You will lose your fleshly indulgences. It will cost you your sin. You will lose sweat. It will cost you labor in fighting against sin. You will lose personal liberties. It will cost you your rights so that you don't lead others into sin. You will lose finances. It will cost you financially as we give up work to serve Christ and write checks to support ministries and support people. We will lose time. It will cost us as we invest in people and prioritize their needs over our own. We will lose sleep. We will lose rest over anxieties over people's souls and weeping for their souls and praying through the night and giving up, giving up days and nights in service of them. We will lose at times our physical lives. It will cost us health and persecution and at times martyrdom. Will it cost you anything? No. Nope. It'll cost you everything. Is it worthwhile? Yes. A thousand times, yes. An infinite number of times, yes. You and I will never regret in heaven anything we give up here in sacrifice to our Savior. It will all be worthwhile. Listen now, John Piper says it. Biblical self-denial means deny yourself lesser joys so you don't lose the big ones. Which is the same as saying, really pursue joy. Don't settle for anything less than full and lasting joy. What are you going to do with your salvation? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship.
Would you bow with me? As we come to prayer, I want to lead us not just in a prayer of gratitude for this passage, but I want to lead us in a prayer of confession to prepare us for the table of communion. Would you pray along with me? We thank you, our Father, for your mercies. Having read this passage, thought on this passage, meditated on this passage for the last 45 minutes, how can we do nothing else but thank you for your mercy? We thank you for the mercy that took pity on us and was sympathetic to us in our sin. We thank you for the mercy that has patiently waited for our repentance. We thank you for the mercy that has enfolded us Gentiles into your plan of salvation. We thank you for the mercy that has chosen us for salvation and then saved us. We thank you for the mercy that is keeping us in your salvation. We thank you for the mercy that our obedience is to you, causing us to experience a power that we otherwise would not have known. So being obedient to you for your mercies, we receive to you, receive from you still more mercy. And because of the mercy that we have received and in anticipation of the table to which we are coming, we confess to you our sin. We confess to you the sin of not contemplating and remembering your mercy. We confess the sin of contemplating the way of the world and valuing the world's temporary and illicit treasures more than we have valued your treasures. We confess ungodly, angry, and selfish words and the failure to build up others. We confess how our pride has kept us from confessing sin to you and others in a timely way. We confess that our broken relationships are our fault. We confess our worry, complaints, and criticism during these COVID months. Complaints about money and government officials and friends who have made different choices than us and our financial condition and the infringement of our rights and our liberties. We confess that we have spent more time these months filling our mind with news and statistics and not enough time filling our mind with your word. We confess we have squandered time and not been active in finding ways to invest in others. We confess that not only have we sinned with our bodies, but we have sinned with our minds. Our desires and motives have not been to bring you glory in all things. And we confess that our sins are so many that we cannot know them all. So we come to you, Father, in confession of these things and myriad more to ask for your forgiveness. Would you wash us? Would you cleanse us? Would you renew us? And we thank you for Jesus Christ who has cleansed our sins once for all in our salvation. And we ask that likewise you would forgive our sin that has impeded our family fellowship as your children. We ask for your forgiveness not on the basis of anything good that we are because we are not good. We ask for forgiveness on the basis of the goodness of Jesus Christ, your eternal Son and part of the infinite Trinity. We ask that His blood would continue to cleanse us, to keep us in Your salvation, to sanctify us in life, and to lead us to eternity with You. And we thank You that His blood will do just that. Having confessed and sought Your forgiveness, might You now be pleased with our worship 
as we remember your Savior at his table. We pray in his name. Amen.